Um, so we're doing Isaiah. We'll be, uh, this is session three, God's promises. We're in chapter seven. We'll be looking at one to 17. And these passages we typically read at Christmas time. Um, chapter seven is where we get the prophecy regarding the coming of Emmanuel. And um, that's usually all we know about chapter 7 as we look at it. Uh, rarely do we actually delve into it. Unfortunately, um, one of the issues that arises with the book of Isaiah is the advent of the Enlightenment period. The Enlightenment brought about a academic understanding of science and its principles, the scientific method being one of them. You know, where you observe, you study, you postulate, the, that, that whole nine yards. And during the Enlightenment period, they brought it into theological circles, the same idea, and they created what we know today as the dispensational theological position, which... Uh, dispensationalism says that the certain things happen at certain time periods and then they don't do it anymore. God stops doing things that way. Uh, being that the Old Testament, there weren't any prophets afterwards because God quit doing miracles and, and all this stuff. And so it's a great idea. Um, dispensationalism is a great idea as a way to look at Scripture, but as a theological construct... It does not allow for certain things um, in it. And this is one of them. This passage, as we look at chapter 7, deals with Isaiah talking to King Ahaz. And he makes a prophecy regarding the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. This, this child that would come. And with the advent of enlightenment and, this, and dispensationalism, they say that that's, all, that's about Jesus, which is true. Jesus himself refers to himself as Emmanuel. Um, the whole virgin birth thing is uh, there in Matthew. Um, the apostles understood it. But that's not the way Isaiah understood it. We have to go back and actually look at it in its historical context, which tends to run contrary to what dispensation believes. And so we don't, we ignore the rest of this passage because Isaiah is a prophet. He predicts this to Ahaz. He, and we're going to see very specific, it's a very specific prophecy, but it's a prophecy that we don't look at in terms of that. We only look at it in terms of Jesus. So we've got to turn off our Jesus radar today. And I want you to look at it in terms of Isaiah, because if Isaiah made this prophecy to King Ahaz, and it doesn't come to pass until Jesus' day, then the prophecy failed because there's going to be some very specifics in it. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy because Jesus tells us that. So that's true. But we can't divorce it from its context, which is Isaiah's day with King Ahaz during this time period. And so I want us to look at that. So yes, I know this passage is about Jesus. Yes, I, I know that it, Jesus is its ultimate fulfillment, 
But there's a historical fulfillment in the time of Isaiah, and that's what I want to focus this on today. So as we do that, let's look there, and um, we'll get uh, started with this. Okay, here we go. So if you have... Come on. If you have your... Uh, well... There we go. Why are we not? There we go. I don't know why I did that. That's weird. Okay. So there we go. If you have your timeline, go ahead and get it out because I, we want to. We want to. I want you to understand the time period we're dealing with um, as we look at this. So go ahead and pull out your timelines. This, is somebody not have them? I might have some extra. I left mine back. We got okay. So here we go. This is Ahaz right here. This purple line, right here. Twenty-one years. Ahaz reigned between seven thirty-five and seven fifteen B.C. So this we're talking more than seven hundred years before Jesus comes. Isaiah is going to make this prophecy seven hundred years. And Isaiah has no idea that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment either, as we look at it. But here's Ahaz. We can see here's Isaiah the prophet up here. Um, and we can see that. What we have is the time period that we're looking at is this little block right here. Somewhere in 7, let's see, that's 38. Am I in the way? Uh, no, 30, 37, 6, 5. Yeah, 735 to somewhere around 732. This is when Isaiah is going to meet with Ahaz and the passages we're about to read take place. As you can see, if you look down this strip, um, Ahaz is the king. There is Pekah is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, I don't have the kings of Assyria on, or kings of Assyria on here, um, but they're in here. They're part of this story as well. What I want you to see is the little star down here at the bottom. Is, the northern kingdom, Israel, is invaded by Assyria. This is early on. The Assyrian empire is expanding at this time. Um, they are moving west. And so Syria, um, well, we call it Syria today. It would have been Samaria, which is um, where the king of the northern kingdom ruled from uh, and the like. They are in that northern area. So if you come from, oh, wait, oh, I don't have a big map up. What did I do with my pointer? Somewhere there's a laser. There you go. Okay, so if you can look on the map, Hey, <laughs> man, we are not catching up. No, we're done. Yeah, I know it. It like did. Hey, you, you stay there. Okay, so this area here, as you can see, here's the Sea of Galilee. This northern area was the way you came across. So way over here would be Assyria. This is the northern kingdom, and the area that would be up in here is the area that is Syria. This is where 
the kings. And so they were the first ones to be invaded by Assyria. And so there's a push by Assyria invading the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, the, the nation, the ancient nation of Syria. And Israel, their Judah, is still safe. As you can see, Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem here. So they're way down there. So King Ahaz lives down there. He's safe from the initial invasion. And what's happening is, is these two nations are trying to get Israel to join with them to fight Assyria off. And so that's what's going on. We're going to see what takes place as we, as we look at this story. And that's where this prophecy is going to come into play. So let's, uh, let's get into it. Lots to read today. All right, somebody read for us Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjashab your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it, thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people." And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. All right, a lot of names, a lot of places. That's why I was trying to set it up as we start this. They're worried about Assyria. They want to defend against Assyria. They're trying to get Judah. Judah refuses. Ahaz says he will not join with the northern kingdom Israel or Damascus, and they won't, and stand against Assyria. They come down to overthrow the king. He and the people of Judah are fearful. They are concerned, and they're threatening to put a puppet king on the throne that they can control, so they can gain um, all the military strength and all the resources that... Jerusalem has. Now, as you can see from our map, Jerusalem being very protected from it, from it because they have to come from... Where's my laser pointer? Because Assyria has to come from way over here, they have limited supplies and limited amount of men. If they lose, they have to send all the way back. And I mean, it's months to get a rider back to Assyria and then months to collect everything you need and then months to march an army back across. So whatever they bring with them is what they've got. If you have enough troops and enough supplies, whereas if they can get Jerusalem, which is all this area down here down the south, where they have all the crops and all that, 
to supply them for this battle that's going to take place somewhere up in here, um, they, can, they have a better chance of winning the war. I mean, let's face it, logistics is everything when it comes to uh, large-scale battles. But he says no. They're terrified that they're going to be wiped out by Israel or by the, by the uh, coalition. And water, he's out there looking at the water. This is before Hezekiah. Anybody remember Hezekiah? What did Hezekiah do? He built tunnels to bring water into the city of Jerusalem. Ahaz is expecting a siege from those guys. He goes out to check the watersheds that are out beyond the city walls to make sure they've got a, that it's secure to bring water into the city. Because let's face it, it's, it's arid in the area. Water is important. You're going to die of thirst and all that. And Isaiah shows up and meets him. Now, this is where understanding this passage in its historical context comes in. God tells Ahaz that within 65 years, Ephraim, Ephraim is who? The Northern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom yeah. Ephraim, is, they, they call the Northern Kingdom Ephraim, will be shattered from being a people. What happens in short order? You got your timeline. What happens? Israel is going to be conquered by Assyria. So God is telling Ahaz, do not fear Ephraim, the northern kingdom, because within 65 years, they're not going to be a people anymore. See, this is why I'm like, yeah, the, what's coming is set in a time frame within 65 years. We know that Jesus isn't born until... Yeah, 3 BC. Well, 700 plus years from now, right? So that it doesn't fit. So that's why when, we, when I said, let's look at this, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, but he's not the fulfillment that Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah knows nothing of that future fulfillment of this passage. He's talking within a 65-year period. So God is intervening. He is setting the stage, if you will, for the elimination of Israel, for them to be carried away into Assyria. He's setting the stage because Ahaz isn't going to do what he's supposed to do. We'll see that here in short order um, for Judah to eventually be taken away into Babylon. This is all part of a plan that God has. All right, so let's get into this. We've moved on to uh, number two in our outline. We're at point two. Uh, the promise of Emmanuel. Uh, again, that tends to be our focus when we come to Isaiah is the coming of Christ. Um, it is very important. I mean, that, that is what's important. The whole Old Testament is setting up the coming of Christ. We know that everything in the Old Testament informs us and is fulfilled in Jesus. Um, but there is historical significance. And this is what we see. We see God intervening. Anytime God intervenes, we need to pay attention because we learn something about God. We learn something about ourselves um, as we do this. And what we see here is Ahaz is fearful of Syria and Ephraim. As far as he's concerned, the world is crashing down around them. God knows their plan. 
It, the, the word comes to Ahaz. He's concerned. The people are fearful. And he doesn't turn to God. Ahaz's first thought is to set up military and prepare for war. We have no record of him going to the temple, praying, beseeching God, or anything. God is the one who sends Isaiah and says, I, I've, I've got, we're going to deal with this. I'm going to take care of it. And God declares their defeat. Not Israel, or the northern kingdom's defeat. They're within 65 years, they're not going to exist. They're going to be there. God's declaration, the way this is worded from Isaiah, it's a vow. It's a promise. Ahaz, do not worry about it. It's done. The idea here is, is it's finished. God is proclaiming a finished action. You just got to wait for it to happen. Um, and it's not contingent on Ahaz. You notice that? As you look at this passage... Usually God would make promises to Israel, but there was usually a caveat. What was it? What is it usually? Obey. obey. Turn back to me. Obey. Follow the law. We don't see any of that here, do we? This is God making a declaration. This is what will happen. The question is, is God in control? Is he sovereign? Can he just decide this, these two people groups are not going to be a problem in 65 years? Can he do that? It's funny because we often think that, that God does it with, uh, you know, with all these, we've got to go out and do it. He's not, a, he's not asking, a, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm hammering this is because we're living in a world today where we've got great concern. I don't know that it's fear, but we're in the election cycle. We've got this virus running around. We've got an economy that's teetering back and forth. Uh, we've got mass protests out on the West Coast. We've got huge roaring fires out there. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot going on. And the same was true with Ahaz. And the question is, is God sovereign? Is God in control? Is it our concern? I'm not saying we don't need to go out and vote and all that, but is it, do we need to be in arguments? Do we need to be, I mean, some of these people are becoming militant about the whole thing. Is, is that what we need to do? Or is, this, or is God the one running everything? Here's Ahaz. God's telling him, don't, 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 don't worry about it. Don't be fearful. I've got it under control. I'm handling it. I'm taking care of it. See, God actually intervenes. We live in a world that has become so scientific, and we look at it and we're trying to figure out, well, how does God intervene? And we're looking for signs. We're looking for, uh, you know, movements of things. Um, yeah, go ahead. My thought is it's kind of like it's all unbelief, and you have to prove to me where he fits in like the belief. The, the, to me, the thought is, it's unbelief, and now you have to show me the belief where it goes. Yeah, well, and that's the, the, yeah, but our belief should be that he's in control. Oh, yeah. And that's where, I think that's what we're all struggling with. I think the whole world is struggling that way, or at least here in America. And I think the American church 
is struggling with it is that we don't believe and we're, we're, we're asking that. Ahaz doesn't believe. That's what we're going to see here in a second. So let's move on and we'll see how this unwraps. Okay, Isaiah 10 through 13. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? All right, thanks. This is interesting. The one thing that we all would love, right? God speaks to Ahaz through Isaiah. Go ahead, ask for a sign. How many of us would not love the opportunity? And God puts no limit on it. That's what I love about this. God says, you can ask for anything. Anything from hell to the highest reaches of heaven, anywhere in between, you name it, I'm going to offer it to you. Man, that's like, yeah, okay, sure. But we see Ahaz here. Now, Ahaz tells us what he won't he won't test the Lord. Isn't there isn't there a, a commandment in the Old Testament back in Moses' day? Don't test the Lord, right? Yeah. So that's what he's like. Okay, I'm not me. I'm not going to test the Lord. It's kind of tongue in cheek, right? Ahaz is making this whole drama about being, I, I'm, I believe God. Well, I, don't need a, I don't need this. God expects us to take him up on his offers. He doesn't offer and then expect us not to do it. What we've got is God is offering a sign. And really what's happening is Ahaz is playing it off because he doesn't trust God. It's not that he doesn't believe him. He doesn't trust him. Remember, going back to the earlier part of the book, what was the sin of Judah? What does Isaiah tell us was their problem? Their heart. Their heart. It wasn't that they weren't faithful to make the offerings and sacrifices. They knew God was God. They had the knowledge, but it wasn't down here in their heart. They really didn't believe it. They really didn't put their faith in God. They put their faith in all the stuff they were doing. So their faith was in what? Themselves, Themselves right. We put our faith, when we put our faith in our religiosity, our, you know, I go to church every Sunday. God's not going to do anything bad to me. I'm, I'm a good churchgoer. I'm there every time the doors open. Oh, I, I work in Awana. I work in this ministry. I work in that ministry. God, you know, I, it's all, it's, our faith is in ourselves and what we do. Ahaz, he's like, I don't want to sign. Because that moves us up, you know, then God is really showing something. I mean, it's one thing to send the prophet. Ah, oh, you're just a prophet. But you get a sign. Now, now you got to do something. It requires us. Um, and we see Isaiah condemns his lack of faith. Why will you not ask for a sign? God's offered it. This isn't a test. This is God making an offer. It's a legitimate offer. 
Do we do this today? Yes. How? We hear the truth so many times and we still don't believe the truth. Okay. I'm going to go more practical. It's a good answer. Turn around and meet our needs. Yeah. We play this card. Pastor comes and says, I need you to do this, or I think you should do that, or you should change this in your life, right? What, what's what's the, the good Christian answer? Yes, sir, I'll do that. No. That's the right answer. I'll pray about it. How many, I, yeah, I've been in ministry way too long, and you're trying to convince somebody to do something, or become a deacon, or whatever, and they play that card. Oh, I don't know if God wants me to do that. I'm going to pray about it. And then you never hear back from them. <laughs> he does not believe, but he wants to appear godly. So Ahaz says, oh, I, I'm not going to test God. That, we're not supposed to test God. I won't do that. I won't ask for a sign. I don't need a sign because I'm not going to do it anyway. <laughs> we do this, we, we, we do this, you know. I want you to consider starting a small group. Oh, I'll pray about it. Six months later, hey, what, what, you really, you're interested? No, God didn't lead me that way. Right. Yeah. A lot of times when there are things that we should be doing and we don't want to do them, we throw that whole, I'm going to pray. We do it today. God's got expectations. He's intervened. He's given clear you know, stuff to Ahaz, we get clear things in our lives, don't we? And we tend to ignore them. Oh, that means I can't work double overtime and won't get that extra pay. I, I think God really wants me to have that extra pay and not, not do this other activity. Or, or well, th this was a big one we had in Korea. Well, that's my family time. So bring your family along with you. <laughs> We, want, we need help in Awana. Can you help? No, that, the, the time you do it is, is when we have our family time. Yeah. All right. Well, what about this? No, nope, no, nope, that's our family time too. So like every minute that's the rest of the week that isn't Sunday morning is family time. Right, yeah. Look, I get it. Family time's important, but when family, you're putting family over doing God's work. Now, granted, we've had years of people going the other way where they're always at church and are never at home with their family. That's an issue too. Uh, but when you're when you're only showing up once a week for an hour on a Sunday morning, I think you got some time you could throw in there. Give up one of your other activities for family time. But that was that we constantly were getting that that thing, and uh, that's what we've got here. This is this is Ahaz has his own plan, his own idea. He doesn't want to do what God wants, and God is offering him a clear cut solution. I'll prove to you that I'm good for it. And he doesn't want, he don't want that because let's face it, if you got a clear cut, you know, God is really going to do this, then you don't have a leg to stand. See, we think that we can just lawyer up against God. Well, I never got the sign because I said I didn't want it. And so I didn't see it. So I didn't really believe. So it's really not my fault, God. That's the mentality we have, isn't it? We do the same thing. We don't want to know God's clear-cut will for our lives because it tends to run contrary to our will for our lives, doesn't it? That's what's going on here. I found this quote. Kyle Eidelman from his book, Not a Fan. He's one of the 
he's an evangelical of one of the mega churches down south. He says, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not close, not so close that it requires anything from them. Our churches are full of these people. They're fans of Christianity. They like the idea that we're supposed to love everyone. They love that idea, and they love to throw it back in our faces. But are they really the ones out there loving anybody? I mean, half of these people, they're not even helping with the benevolence offering so that we can love other people, let alone supporting the ministry and all that. But there are lots of them, and they're just fans of Christianity. Let's face it, Christianity is a great deal. You know, God rolls out blessings. You just give a couple hours of your time and show up at church on a week, during the week, and you, you, know, you do all that. You don't really have to do anything. I mean, compared to other religions... I mean, Islam, I mean, you got to, you know, there's all, you got to pray three times a day on your knees, head the floor. Uh, you got to fast certain, I mean, there's a lot of rules. And then they may call on you to be a suicide bomber at some point in time too. I mean, there's that. Uh, I mean, a lot of these other religions, man, there's a lot of draw on it. Christianity is really easy. I mean, you just show up. Maybe throw a few bucks at Christmas time or whatever. Christianity's good. And you get all the blessings because you're just part of the group. Right? It just kind of washes over you. We're not fans. We're not called to be fans. We're called to follow. He's the sovereign king. Yeah, being a fan of God doesn't mean anything in his book. It's a relationship that is us becoming Christ. That means our lives should constantly be changing. It's not a once and done deal. There is always something in our life that is out of tune with Christ that we need to bring into his domain and allow him control of it and be changing it. And it's, sometimes it's just painful. Ahaz is a fan of God, but he's not a follower. All of Israel, I mean, that's the whole thing that, that Isaiah is talking about in chapters one to five, right? The whole nation is a fan of God, but they're also fans of the other gods, too. They do what they're supposed to do. They come to the games, they bring their pom-poms, and they cheer, and they get to go to the after party when their team wins. Otherwise, if the other team wins, well, I was a fan of that team, too. It's like the people during the Super Bowl. <laughs> we have a friend. It changes the, during the Super Bowl, midway through. Oh, this team's up. I'm rooting for them now. Really? That's what they're doing. We do it with sports teams. We're doing it now. We got people that are jumping ship. Oh, I'm not really a Christian. Uh, you know, they're, they're not loving enough or whatever. I'm going to be, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to support this group, that group, or whoever, because they're more loving than the church is. They're just a bunch of white people. and all that. We got all sorts of people, and it's like, it has nothing to do with that, does it? It has to do with Christ. Are we Christians? Christ-likeness. Ahaz is doing the same thing. See, nothing's new. It hasn't changed. All right, I'm, I'm desperate to get us out on time. Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, I'm sorry, this is, uh, yeah, I get it again. I didn't change the thing. Chapter 7, 14 through 15. Somebody read that for us. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He 
virgin will be a child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. All right. Where does this sign come from? Huh? From God? Yeah. This sign, it was not, Ahaz said, I'm not going to choose. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign. This is why we know that the fulfillment of it is fulfilled in Jesus, because God's setting this up. Ahaz didn't ask for this. He didn't want this. God said, okay, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to show you something unbelievable. Now, I don't want to get into the argument, but I'm going to make you aware of the argument, and you can go and do your own research or whatever. The word here for virgin, it is interesting. Anan is the Hebrew word, and it can mean maiden or young woman that's not married or a woman that's married but has not had children yet. It does not strictly mean um, a woman who's never had sex. Okay, in that sense. When this word was translated, as you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek for the Septuagint, which is what they used um, in Jesus' day. They were using mostly the Septuagint because people couldn't read Hebrew anymore. The word the Septuagint chose for virgin is a Greek word that is extremely explicit that means the woman has never had sex before. So in the Hebrew, the original word here is a very general, general idea of young woman. But when we get to the Septuagint, they translated it to mean a woman who has never had sex. So that's where we get that whole idea. And that's what, that's what its meaning is, because we see that with Jesus as Mary is chosen. And I mean, it's told to us between Jesus and the angels, they, they inform us that that's what the meaning was. But it is interesting as we're dealing with this time period that Isaiah has a young wife. And she's going to have a child and they're going to call it Emmanuel later on. The whole thing, this whole thing is fleshed out through him in Ahaz's day. Because remember, this has got to happen within 65 years. And now it's even more narrow because... By the time the child is able to eat curds, so when the child becomes old enough, it's not a baby, but it, when it becomes a child, before it turns 12, so you got 12 years because that's when they believed that a child could know good from evil was when they had their bar mitzvah. They become an adult. Um, so within 12 years, Israel, the northern kingdom Israel and Syria are going to disappear. They're going to be conquered by Assyria, we see that in the timeline. That's, it does happen within 12 years. So we get this. And so th- if, if this isn't true, if this is only about Jesus and this part isn't true about the coming um, for Isaiah's child and all that, we've got real problems because then it wasn't fulfilled within the time period. See, there, these are all issues with the whole thing. Like I said, in theological circles, you can get in a lot of arguments and debates over this. I'm just making you aware of it. This is what we call a dual fulfillment prophecy. God is prophesying for Isaiah's day and for the coming of Christ. Because the ultimate God with us, the ultimate Emmanuel is Jesus. 
um, in it. But in Ahaz's day, there also is a child that is born, and it's predicted here that this is going to happen, etc., and so forth. All right, let's move on. Or, well, we're not really moving on. We're seeing that God announces. This is God's announcement. And this is what its focus is. God's going to prove himself worthy. It's funny. We don't really think of it that we think God's not worthy to believe, do we? When we don't take God at his word, when we don't do something because we don't trust God, we don't think that he's unworthy. But God is going to prove himself. He's going to show himself worthy to Ahaz. And he makes this prediction for it. He's not limited by our lack of faith. Ahaz doesn't have faith. Most of the time, we don't have faith. We don't trust him. We don't believe him. And we go on and make our own plans, do our own thing. God's not limited by that, is he? Which is surprising. It isn't take us to do something to make something happen. It's us just believing that it will happen and wait for God to bring it about. I mean, that was... That was the whole problem with the crusades, if you will. They, they played on people's, well, we've got to go out there and bring God's kingdom to the earth, so we're going to go out and kill the infidel, and that'll bring God to earth, right? Well, we, we want to do something to make it happen because we don't believe in his promise. We don't trust that he's going to bring it about, and we just need to live ourselves the way he told us to live. Huh? Third, God was with them. That's ultimately what they didn't believe, isn't it? Who's Ahaz's faith in? Himself, his military. I think the church is doing that today. Who's our faith in today? Us, in general. No, be more specific. Who is it that we're putting our faith in today? Okay, politicians, the president, government. Our faith is in government. If we could just get the right government, right? Yeah, it all. Be, I mean, we're, you look how many churches are pumping money, time, effort into backing politicians. Now, look, we're Americans. We have the right to vote. It's one of the strangest things that we we that these people in this in that age couldn't understand because they had kings. They came to power through power. But we have the chance to do. I'm not saying that we don't participate. But when that becomes our focus, I got a lot of friends on Facebook. And I'll tell you what, probably 90% of what's talked about or discussed is what so-and-so said versus what such-and-such said. Or this, that, or that. I'm like, you're wasting so much time and effort because you can't know what they're talking about unless you've read at least two hours worth of articles. Three hours worth of articles. My question is, is, did you read that much time in your Bible today? Really? Huh. I doubt it. See, that's what we're putting our faith in. Our faith is being, we're, we're building our faith on top of a system that God has already told us is going to be obsolete. I mean, that's what Chris is talking about. Christ is coming back. He's already won the war. The war is over. And we're just waiting for him to usher in his kingdom. It's going to be swept away. The American 
constitution is going to be done away with by God. He's setting up a monarchy, not a, not a uh, uh, constitutional, um, not to mock, republic. It's going to be a monarchy. He's going to rule. <laughs> um, we, don't, we don't believe him, that he's with us, that he's in charge. Now, I'm not saying that we just need to go out and get a farm and, and do the whole Amish thing. I'm not suggesting that at all, because we need to be in the world and part of the world and all that, because we have a job. We've been given a job to go out and do. We're supposed to love one another so that the world can see Christ through us. Loving one another doesn't mean beating up each other on Facebook or Twitter over which candidate we like. I don't care who you like. I'm, I'm, it's irrelevant to me because we're supposed to love one another. There's some seriously unloving I mean, this week with Trump being found out that he had the coronavirus, people who claim to be Christians are like, yes, I hope he dies. How in the world is that loving? Is God with us? Do we believe it? Mm. Wow. All right. Ultimately, we will be with them. He will be with us in person. I don't think I worded that quite. Got all my pronouns lined up. Ultimately, he's going to be with us. We see this. The ultimate fulfilling of God with us is Jesus being born, <laughs> wandering around for 30-odd years in Jerusalem, Judea. And we execute him. And then he sends us the Holy Spirit. And this is where I think we really forget if the Holy Spirit is indwelling in us, and I mean, God himself says, I'm going to send him. He's going to write the, his law on our hearts. He's going to indwell us to give us power. He tells the disciples, don't leave Jerusalem until you have the power of the Holy Spirit. He's with us, isn't he? The ultimate fulfillment was Jesus coming, yes, but giving us the Holy Spirit in ourselves so that we can overcome sin, overcome death, that we can make the right choices. That's God with us. God is in us. And he's modeling us more and more like Christ if we let him. I mean, otherwise we're fighting against him. This is, this, this is what this announcement is bringing to us. This is what Ahaz didn't get, and I think it's what we don't get today. It's part of the problem that we're more like Ahaz than we are the other way. Comment or question before I move us on. All right. One more. Chapter 7, 16 through 17. For the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. All right, so here's the end of this prophecy. See, we, we cut it off. We like the part where he's going to send the virgin baby and all that, and we, we read that at Christmas. But the end of this, before the boy knows 
how to refuse good and evil. Let's face it, if you've had small children, do they know good from evil? They only know what they want, right? Yeah, the, the, when, they're, when they're little, they, they only know. I, we have all these neighborhood kids. We live in a complex. And uh, it's inevitable. Somebody's getting in trouble. And uh, they don't make good choices. Our neighbor was yelling on his deck at, his, at one of his children the other, last night, two nights ago, to get in here because he didn't clean his room. And like his mother had said, and he he's like, did you know what you did? You know why I'm calling you in here? And yeah, the kid knew, but he didn't make the right choice, right? We know. You ever done that with your kids? Do you know why you're in trouble? And they look at you. Unless they're really little and they don't have a clue, they look at you and go, um, well, yeah. Right, Chacha? You've never done that, right? No, I think I've only witnessed it, I don't know, a thousand times, right? Yeah, no, we do that, right? We, we all did it when we, your, your parents would call you and what did you do? And you're standing there, you're trying to think, what can I tell them that isn't that bad, right? Or, or, and then you admit to something and they didn't even know you had done that one because that would, cause you think that's a lesser one, so now you're in trouble for two things. Before the child is old enough to really know these two kingdoms are going to be wiped out. And Judah is now going to suffer. Uh, if you don't remember your history, when Ephraim, when the northern kingdom separated from Judah after Solomon's death, they waged war with each other and it was nasty. And it was brutal because people had to decide because they intermarried with each other from the tribes. And so, you know, they, they had, I mean, it's kind of like our civil war, brother versus brother. I mean, it was a civil war over the reign of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And the two kingdoms fought a civil war. I mean, you think of our own history, how nasty that was. That's what it was like. And God is saying, it's, you've not seen that kind of war since then. And you're going to face that now because you wouldn't trust me because you wouldn't put your faith in me. And he, he put his faith. Now, who knows what he did? Anybody know what Ahaz actually did instead of putting his faith in God? Didn't he ask for help from another king? Yes. He made a deal with Assyria, which is the, what the two kings wanted. They wanted him to join them and fight against Assyria so he went to Assyria and said, hey, look, this is what they're planning. I'm willing to make a deal with you. And Assyria is going to come down, destroy those two kingdoms, and keep on coming for Jerusalem. And he's going to create all kinds of problems. He's going to deal with it, and it's going to be down the way we're here. But they put their faith in Assyria. Can you imagine? Oh, God. Now, this is, remember, this is a Jewish king. <coughs> He has access to all the histories. He grew up doing all the, the festivals, all the um, sacrifices, all those things. So he knew the history with Moses, with um, Joshua as they entered the country, entered the land. He knew all those things. He knew the history of his own forefathers, David. And how David destroyed all these kingdoms. 
all this, he's got all this knowledge and he says, no, I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to go to my, the enemy of my enemy and make a deal with them. Can you imagine? No, neither can I, but we do it, don't we? We may, we don't put our faith in God. We know everything that I just said, don't we? It's right there. It's in that book. You've got sitting open in front of you. All that history, we know all that and all the other history that that hasn't happened yet from Isaiah's perspective. We know all that and we still choose against God. So we can sit here and judge Ahaz all we want, but (laughs) let's face it, I'll bet at least once this week you made a choice that wasn't what God would want. Ouch. Ouch. I know I've gone to, I'm I'm going to meddling now. I've I've moved from from teaching to meddling. (laughs) But we do it. We are guilty as Ahaz. We want to throw, we want to throw stones and poke holes in these guys. How could they not? I wouldn't have done that. I mean, we're, which is what the Pharisees said to Jesus. If we had been there instead of our parents, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. Really? <laughs> really? You executed him. We're just, we're, we're no better. We would have done the same thing. It's kind of like, this, this is one of those head slaps from the back. Wake up. Don't we, we, we know as much, we know more. We have even less to stand on than they did. So here it is. God judges, and I think this is something that we like to forget. We choose to forget this. That God is actually going to judge. Judah's disobedience is their downfall. The whole nation is going to suffer because of King Ahaz. But let's face it, the whole nation is just as guilty. They're all afraid. They all don't want to really follow God. And it's their unbelief that is going to be judged. It's our unbelief. When we don't really believe God's going to do or control or be in charge, and we decide to take, some, take it into our own hands, and I know better than God, and I make a choice, that I know is slightly contrary to the will of God, according to Scripture. You know, it's only slightly, so it won't be that bad, right? We, we, we've, got, we've got the excuses. God intervenes, God expects, God announces, and God judges. That's what we see here. That's what's going on in this passage. And yes, the ultimate fulfillment is going to be Jesus coming in the future, 700 plus years from now. But what are we doing today? What was, I, what was Ahaz doing that day? We'll wrap this up. God's plans are a source of hope for his people, or at least they were supposed to be. God didn't send Isaiah to Ahaz except to bring hope. They were terrified. The people were concerned with this coalition that was coming to wipe them out. God sends his hope. God, oh, it didn't show up. God expects his people to respond to that hope in faith. He holds out hope and he expects us to believe him. He has certainly got a track record worthy of being believed. There's plenty of proof in the pudding, if you will. 
Because we know God is faithful to keep his promises. He will do what he says he's going to do. And then we see God brings judgment on those who fail to trust him. This is all right here out of this passage. And you know what's interesting? We see it here and we all get it, right? But we don't believe it about Jesus, do we? It's the same thing. Do we put our faith and trust in him or we don't? And if we don't, the judgment is coming. Hell is a real place that he is going to send those who don't believe in Jesus. Well, here it wasn't hell. It was going to be war that was coming. It hasn't changed. Belief system hasn't changed. We believe and we do. We follow God and we go about our business. And in the end, when we're judged, those who believe and have the faith are found righteous. And those who don't will get the punishment. Jesus is the ultimate proof of his faithfulness. He said that God would be with them. And then he sent his son. And then the son sent the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. To be part of our everyday choices and actions. We live in a world that is out of control. Not unlike the world that Ahaz found himself in. Warmongering countries like Assyria marching to wipe people out. Nations trying to stop that from happening. There was a solution. And he made the wrong choice for that solution. Where are we today? Are we putting our faith in God and following him? which is the proof that we have faith in God. Uh, Otherwise, if we aren't following him, but we're saying it, then we're nothing more than a fan. Let's pray. Father, as we move forward in this season, with the elections coming, the end of the year, and all the stuff that goes with it, Lord, I pray that we would not find that we are nothing more than fans of you, but that we're actually followers. Lord, that we put our faith and that our faith is backed up with our actions. Lord, that we would take you at your word and do as you've asked us to do. Help us to live in this world in a loving manner that exalts you over our own things. In your name we pray. Amen.